Pray with me. Jesus, you are seated on your throne, and we proclaim to you this morning that you will reign forever as our King and as our Lord. You are reigning right now over all the earth, and you rule over your people through your word. And I pray this morning, O King, O Lord, that you speak to us through your word, that your word is clearly proclaimed, that we may see and look to you as our divine warrior, so that as we fight this spiritual battle that we are in, we know that you fight for us, so that we are empowered to fight with you. We pray now for your help and your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning, everybody. Glad to see all your lovely and smiley and shiny faces this morning. Welcome to 2019. This is the first sermon of the year, the first Sunday of the year. Uh, If you are a guest with us this morning, we are glad that you are here. My name is Devin. I'm the church planting resident on staff here, and I have the wonderful opportunity and honor of preaching God's word this morning. This morning, we're going to be in Judges chapter 4. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand, and our strike team will hand one out to you. And Judges chapter 4 is on page 131 in the strike team Bibles and in Maggie Burns' Bible, if you're wondering. 131. It's a good page number. So this morning is the second of two standalone sermons that we are preaching as we transition into the new year. Next week, we're going to begin a three-week series on ecclesiology, which is the study of the theology of the church. And then after that, beginning in February, we're going to do roughly 17-week series going through the fourth book of the Psalms, which is Psalm 90 through Psalm 106, and I'm super excited about that. But this morning, I will be preaching from the book of Judges, And I really have no good rationale why we're in Judges. It is completely random. Um, I did see on the website um, a couple weeks ago that there has never been, according to the website, a sermon from Judges in River City history. So if that's accurate, I'm excited that this will be the best and the worst sermon (laughs) from Judges. So, Oh, there were some back, back in the day. Okay, okay. We're not allowed to talk about that, apparently. (laughs) All right, so um, I just want to give a little bit of an extended introduction, just to give an overview of the book, just because I'm a nerd and I love these things, but it also helps us understand what's going on. So I want to begin with the book of Judges and just talk about the components, what is all in this book. And this is coming from a professor and personal mentor of mine, Miles Van Pelt, and that's actually very clear as you read the book. But the book has two introductions, two conclusions, six major judges, six minor judges, and one anti-judge, who is Abimelech. And the book is not in that order. You can see the verses on there, but that's the makeup of the book. That's the component, so you can kind of see what's going on there. Now, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 23, 
we get the framework for what's going on in this book. There's a pattern and there's a cycle that happens over and over again. And this framework gives the seven elements that are found in the narratives of the six major judges. Okay? Um, Just remember that this framework in this book is set in the context right after the book of Joshua. And if you remember in Joshua 24, the people just had a covenant renewal with the Lord and they said, we will do everything written in the book of the law. And Joshua is like, no, you can't. (laughs) And then the next chapter we get to Judges and you can see the downward spiral. Um, And this is the makeup of that spiral. So the people of Israel do evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord sells them into the hand of an enemy. Then after years of oppression, the people of Israel cry out to the Lord. The Lord raises up a judge to deliver Israel. The Lord gives the enemy into the hands of the judge. And then the land has rest. And then the judge dies. Now as as the book goes on, you see less and less of these elements showing the need for a better judge. And the book ends, the very last um, two sentences of the book, with a line that is repeated multiple times in the two conclusions. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The Israelites have rejected the kingship of the Lord, and this downward spiral and pattern is meant to point the reader to the need of the kingship of the Lord. And this sets up the next book, which is 1 Samuel. Um, in the Hebrew order, Ruth is after Proverbs. But we don't, we don't need to dive into that. If you want to talk about that, I'd love to. Uh, but not right now. So that's the components in the framework of what's going on, big picture what's going on in Judges. Um, I also just want to give a very brief introduction on how we can understand and interpret this book. We should always use the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament. And just to give a brief summary of how we do this, Jesus says in John 5.39 that the Scripture, and he's referring to the Old Testament, the Scripture bears witness about me, he says. And so as we read through the book of Judges, we should be looking for how this book bears witness about Jesus Christ. And so I just want to give a very brief framework on how we can do that. When we look at the major judges, there are four main ways they are described in this book. First, they are raised up and commissioned by the Lord. Second, the Lord is with the judge, and that's usually by the Spirit. And as a side note, um, just keep this in mind as we go along, um, all of the major judges, the Spirit is with them, except for Ehud and uh, Barak, and we're going to talk about Barak today. And uh, just keep that in mind because I believe that the Lord is with Barak and will describe how he is with him as we continue. So, but going back to the major judges and how they're described, um, the, next, the next thing is the judges save the people, and then after that, the judge's life corresponds to the land having rest, um, spe- specifically rest from war. Now, if we're looking at all of these elements of the judges, all of these things could be said about Jesus. Jesus was commissioned and raised up by the Father. The Holy Spirit is with Jesus. Jesus saves his people, and our eternal rest corresponds with the life of Jesus. 
And so with that being said, I'm just going to lay all my cards on the table and say I believe very strongly that the judges are meant to prefigure and to point to Jesus Christ. Because as you'll see as you read the book, you'll notice that these judges aren't perfect. Therefore, a better judge is needed. And this is clearly fulfilled in Jesus. And that is how the book bears witness about Jesus. Okay, thank you for letting me nerd out. Now, our text this morning is going to be in Judges chapter 4. And in this text, the people of Israel do evil in the sight of the Lord for the third time in the book. And because of Israel's evil, the Lord sells them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Now, the fact that a Canaanite king rules in Hazor already shows Israel's downfall. Because in, jo- in Joshua chapter 11, Joshua defeated the Canaanites in Hazor. And now you get to Judges chapter 4 and there's already a Canaanite king ruling there. And this king, he had a commander of his army and his name was Sisera. And they had 900 chariots of iron. This would be extremely intimidating to the Israelites um, who are described in chapter 5, 8 as being completely defenseless against them. And so the Israelites, after being oppressed and crushed on one side by Jabin for 20 years and sinfully trying to find their rest in their evil deeds on the other, they finally cry out to their true rest, the Lord for help. And our text today is going to describe how the Lord responded to the people of Israel when they cry out to him. So let's look at it together. Um, Judges chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole chapter, even though verses 1 through 3 I just described. And I apologize. Oh, oh no. I apologize for the font. It kind of changes. There's got to be a a sermon illustration in there somewhere. But Judges chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zat-Ananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron. 
and all the men who were with him from Harosheth Agoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Um, I just want you to look at one more thing. So chapter 5 is just a song that they sing of praise to the Lord. And at the end of chapter 5, if you want to turn and look with me, the very last sentence at the end of verse 31 says, After all of this, the land had rest for 40 years. So just keep that in mind. This is the word of the Lord. Do you remember when the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt in Exodus 14? Now, I just want to use that story as an illustration this morning. Could you imagine being one of the Israelites, being in slavery your whole life to the Egyptians, until finally the Lord brings you out of Egypt? And as you're leaving Egypt, you reach this big body of water, which is the Red Sea. And after realizing there is no way to cross the Red Sea, you see this huge army 600 battle-tested chariots racing after you, and you realize that you are trapped. On one side, you have this huge, gigantic body of water, and it looks like it wants to swallow you. On the other side, you have this ferocious army who is salivating over the thought of devouring you. You are completely prisoned in. There is nothing that you can do, because there is nothing that you can do to help yourself from this oncoming attack. How would you feel in that situation? What would you do? Now, this real historical situation paints a picture for us of what it looks like to live in this fallen world. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that we aren't wrestling against flesh and blood, but we are wrestling against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. On one side, you have Satan who's telling you that you're not good enough 
And that brings you to the other side that says, I need to work harder. I need to do better. And so you put absolutely everything that you have into your job, into your schoolwork, or whatever you're working on until it sinfully consumes you and you realize that you'll never live up to this standard. And then over here, you have Satan laughing at you and he's telling you, no, not only are you not good enough, but your marriage is falling apart. And guess what? It's your spouse's fault. And then that brings you over here and you blame your spouse for the way things are. And that leads into lust or an emotional relationship or pornography or adultery. And then you come back over here and you have Satan tempting you and accusing you. And then you come over here and you respond in sin. And you are imprisoned between the lies and temptations of Satan and the consequences of your sin. My friends, are you exhausted in this battle? Or have you become completely numb to temptation and sin? This is the battle that we all face on this planet. And we must realize that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves because just like the Israelites, we are completely helpless in this all-encompassing fight. We need somebody to fight for us. Now this passage this morning tells us that the Lord will fight for us when we cry out to him. And there's two ways that he fights for us, and these are my two points this morning. So first, he fights for us by raising up and sending a warrior, verses 4 through 13. And second, he fights for us by destroying our enemies. So first point this morning, the Lord fights for us by raising up and sending a warrior. In this passage, we meet a woman named Deborah, who is a prophetess. Now, as a prophetess, she represented the word of the Lord to the people. And because of this, the people of Israel would come to her and they would receive her judgment for civil cases. And Deborah is a very special woman because the Lord is going to use her to raise up a warrior because the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And so Deborah called out to Barak. He had Barak come to her and representing the word of the Lord, she told Barak, that the Lord has commanded him to be the warrior of the people of Israel. She told him that he was the one that the Lord would use to destroy Sisera and the king of Jabin. And so Barak told, or excuse me, Deborah told Barak to gather 10,000 of his men and get ready for battle. But Barak responded to Deborah by saying, if she doesn't go into battle with him, then he's not going to go. What's going on here? That's a very strange response, isn't it? Now remember that the Israelites have been cruelly oppressed by Sisera and his army for 20 years. And Barak knew that he wouldn't be able to defeat Sisera on his own. So Deborah, um, and if you go back, if you remember that the Lord is with the judges through his spirit. And I believe wholeheartedly, and you can disagree with me here, this is okay, but I believe that Deborah, as a prophetess, is representing the word of the Lord. I think you probably can't argue against me with that, but I think that she's representing the presence of the Lord as well. 
And so a lot of modern commentators, they say that um, Barak is a wimp because he needs this woman to go with him into battle. But no, I think the way that Deborah is functioning and the role that she plays in this narrative representing the presence of God, that Barak is saying, no, I, I can't win this battle on my own. I need the presence of the Lord to go with me. So he's saying, Deborah, I'm not going to go without you. I need you to come with me. And Deborah responds to Barak by telling him, yes, I will absolutely go with you. But then Deborah tells him that the glory of this victory will not belong to you because it will belong to a woman. The Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now remember, the Israelites, they were sold into the hand of their enemy, and now the Lord is promising that their enemy will be sold into the hand of a woman. And so at this point in the narrative, you're kind of expecting Deborah to be the one to receive this glory, but we will wait and see what happens. So Deborah goes with Barak, and Barak immediately calls out to his troops to come up with him to get ready for this battle. And when Sisera heard that Barak was raising up his troops, he called out to his 900 chariots of iron so that he could meet Barak in this battle that would decide the future of Israel. After 20 years of being oppressed and crushed by Jabin and Sisera on one side and sinfully trying to find their rest in their evil deeds on the other, the Israelites finally cry out to their true rest, the Lord for help. And in the midst of their entrapment, the Lord answered their cry out by raising up and sending a warrior named Barak to fight for them. And my friends, in the midst of our entrapment between sin and Satan, the Lord has sent a warrior to fight for us. And as we talk about how this passage bears witness to Jesus, this is one way that it's doing it. The truth that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to be the divine warrior who fights for his people. Jesus is the only one qualified to fight against our greatest enemies, which is sin and Satan. And you could argue death, but I'm just not going to focus on death this morning. Now, how is Jesus qualified to fight against sin and Satan? He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and he was born without sin. And he was baptized so that he could identify himself with sinners. And when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him signifying that the Lord is with him. The Holy Spirit is with this divine warrior. And then right after his baptism in Matthew, he was tempted in the wilderness by the same Satan that tempts us. But Jesus, our divine warrior, was tempted in every way that we are, but he didn't sin. He suffered when he was tempted so that he is able to fight those who are being tempted. To fight for those who are being tempted. Jesus Christ is the perfect and everlasting divine warrior that God has sent to fight for us in our battle with sin and Satan. And he is the only one qualified to win this battle because he is sinless and he has never given in to the temptations of the devil. Do you recognize Jesus as your divine warrior? Do you look to Christ as your divine warrior? Or are you comfortable in your sin 
and your slavery to temptation. So often, we try to fight this battle on our own. We don't realize that we're like the Israelites, stuck between the Red Sea and the angry Egyptian army. And we think that we can be righteous on our own. Or we think that we can fight the temptations of Satan on our own. The truth is that we can't. We need somebody to fight for us. But thankfully, the Lord will fight for us when we cry out to him. The Lord will fight for us when we cry out to him. He does this first by sending Jesus Christ, the divine warrior. And he does this second by destroying our enemies. So second point this morning is the Lord fights for us by destroying our enemies. And this is coming from verses 14 through 24. So the Lord used the prophetess Deborah to raise up and send Barak to fight for the Israelites. And Barak is about to go into battle against Sisera and his 900 powerful chariots of iron. And Deborah, representing the word of the Lord and the presence of the Lord, tells Barak that this is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into his hand. So Barak takes 10,000 of his troops and he goes down to fight against Sisera. What's amazing in this text is that it's the Lord used the edge of the sword of his warrior to defeat Israelites' enemies. The Lord used the sword of his warrior to defeat Israel's enemies. And because of the chaos of the battle, Sisera got off his chariot and he ran away on foot. And Barak pursued the army and the chariots about 20 miles to the west. So think about going all the way almost to uh, Castleton. Except, and when they got there, he met them and he destroyed all of them, except for Sisera, who fled seven miles to the east, which is a little bit over halfway to Dilworth. And Sisera went to the tent of Jael, whose husband was at peace with the king, um, King Jabin. And as Sisera got to Jael, Jael goes out to meet him and she tries to comfort him and tries to calm him down. And so Sisera goes into her tent and she covered him with a rug. Now we don't know exactly what this rug is, but more than likely, I think that it is um, the rug dividing the male and the female quarters of a tent. And so Jael hides Sisera into the female quarters of the tent, which would have been a perfect place to hide from people who were trying to kill him. And so Sisera is exhausted, and he's thirsty, and he asks Jael for a drink of water. And Jael comes back not with water, but with milk. And that represents that, he, that she was treating him like royalty. So he asks for water. She comes back with milk, treating him like royalty, and as Jael closed the female quarters of the temple or of the, the tent, Sisera told, tells her that if anyone is coming and looking for me, tell them that nobody is here. And so Sisera falls into this deep sleep, and Jael sneaks out of the tent, and she grabs a tent peg, which looks just like a gigantic nail, and she grabs a hammer. And she sneaks back into the tent, and while Sisera is sleeping, she pounds the nail through the head of Sisera until it goes all the way down to the ground. And then, my favorite sentence in this whole narrative, so he died. 
Thank you. <coughs> so Sisera is dead, and Barak was still pursuing him. And as Barak gets to Jael's tent, Jael comes out and meets him and says, Come, I have the man that you are looking for. So she brings Barak into her tent and shows him Sisera dead on the ground, and he sees the tent peg all the way through his head. And that was the day that the Lord humbled Jabin, king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And it wasn't long before the Lord had completely cut off Jabin. And Israel had rest from their enemies for 40 years because the Lord fought for them by destroying their enemies. The Lord will fight for us by destroying our enemies. And our greatest enemies are sin and Satan. Our enemies are not the people who cut us off on the interstate. Our enemy is the sinful bitterness that overwhelms our heart when that happens. Sin is anything that we think, feel, or do that comes from a heart that doesn't cherish God over all things. And we are all sinners, and we are all constantly bombarded with our sin that is evil in the sight of the Lord. So in our war zone, we have sin over here, and over here we have Satan tempting us to sin and tempting us to turn away from God, and we live in this vicious circle of a battleground. And we need somebody to fight for us. Do you recognize that need? God has sent a perfect warrior to fight for us. As we looked at earlier, that warrior is Jesus Christ. And just like God sent Barak to deliver Israel from their enemy, God sent Jesus to deliver us from our greatest enemies. Jesus is our divine warrior who fights for us by destroying sin and Satan. Now, how did he do this? Jesus delivered us from sin by becoming sin on the cross and taking the whole wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. He destroyed our enemy of sin by being destroyed in our place. And when Christ died for our sins on the cross, he also crushed the head of Satan like Jael crushed the head of Sisera. Christ, the ultimate divine warrior, fought for us by destroying our enemies through his gruesome death on the cross, his conquering resurrection, and he sits right now at the throne of God that we were just singing earlier as the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and Warrior of Warriors. But can you imagine Jesus, the divine warrior, fighting for you by giving up his body on the cross? Can you imagine a divine warrior who conquers through death? What an amazing picture and truth and reality that is. And my friends, if you have put your trust and your faith in Christ, then he has fought for you for your salvation. And your application this morning is to fight with Jesus. And let me just clarify this here. If you trust in Christ, then Jesus has fought for you for your salvation from the hands of sin and Satan. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer a slave to to Satan. And so what we need to recognize is that Jesus Christ fights for us, for our salvation, and that Christ fights with us 
for our sanctification. Notice how in Judges chapter 4, that when the Lord raised up a deliverer to fight for them, the people in the army still fought with the warrior. We still have a part to play in this battle. We can't win it on our own. We need a divine warrior, but that doesn't mean that we don't fight. So what does it look like for us to fight with Christ in this battle? In Judges chapter 4, the Lord used the crying out of the Israelites, and he used the sword of the warrior to fight for and with them. And these are the same weapons that we use as we fight with Christ. We fight by using the sword of our divine warrior, which is the word of God. And that's amazing. How many warriors have you heard of or watched in the movies that let other people use their sword? But not only that, we fight by crying out to God in prayer. Again, how many warriors do you know that you get to have 24-7 access to them? But our challenge in these things is that we need to fight to read the Word of God and we need to fight by reading the Word of God. We need to fight to cry out to God in prayer and we need to fight by crying out to God in prayer. We use the word of God to fight against the lies and the temptations of the devil. When he tells us that we're not good enough, we can look to the word that tells us that in Christ we are forgiven and cleansed and we are beloved sons and daughters of God. When Satan tells us that our marriage problems are our spouse's fault, we look to the word which tells us that husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church and wives are to respect their husbands. We cry out to Jesus in prayer to fight against the sin in our heart. When we are tempted to work hard and earn our own acceptance before God, we can cry out to God in prayer to deliver us from the evil one and forgive us when we sin. When we are tempted to pass the blame or lust, we can cry out to Jesus to deliver us from the evil one and to forgive us when we sin. When we fight with the word of God, And when we cry out to him in prayer, we can rest in the truth that the debt that we owe for our sin has been paid for and therefore there is nothing that Satan can accuse us of. And as Jesus fights for us and as he fights with us, we can find true rest in this battle. Jesus has already won the battle but the full realization of this victory has not taken place. We live in the already and not yet of this battle. But what's amazing is is that in the already, in the now, we can have true rest in Christ. And this true rest looks like rest in the midst of a storm. If you remember Jesus sleeping on the boat in the middle of a crazy, crazy storm, that's what rest in this world looks like. It's rest on a heart level no matter what's going on. And our hearts can find this type of rest now in the midst of the battle. But we get to look forward to the true rest that will come when our divine warrior will come back and destroy eternally and completely our enemies, sin and Satan. Barak's deliverance only gave the Israelites rest for 40 years. But the deliverance and salvation of Christ will give us eternal rest from sin 
and Satan. And as we wait for the day of eternal rest from our enemies, let us fight for rest in Christ through the word of God and through prayer. And may our hearts and our souls find rest in the truth that the Lord will fight for us when we cry out to him. He fights for us by sending Jesus Christ as our divine warrior, and he fights for us by destroying our enemies. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that in the midst of our battle between sin and Satan, you have sent a divine warrior who will fight for us to save us and deliver us. But not only that, you have sent a divine warrior who will fight with us. And I pray for everyone here this morning that you give us hearts to recognize that we are in a battle. Give us hearts to look to you as our divine warrior in this battle. And give us hearts to fight to read your word of God. Give us hearts to fight by reading your word of God. Give us hearts to fight to pray. And give us hearts to fight by praying. Be with us, Lord, in this battle. And we thank you that we can trust that you will be with us. And you will fight for us when we cry out to you. In Christ's name, amen.